0: And let's ask the Lord for a blessing upon the reading of his word. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, your word is light and it is life, for it reveals Jesus Christ. And like those Gentiles of old, Lord, who came to your disciples seeking Jesus, we too would see Jesus. So open our eyes to see. Open your word that it might reveal Open the mouth of the one who speaks that he might proclaim the truth of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. We're going to read from 1 Samuel 19, page 286 in your pew Bibles, 286, 1 Samuel 19. We'll read the entire chapter as we continue our study of Samuel, of David, of the kingship of Israel. You remember that in chapter 18, there were some very positive things. Jonathan loved David. Michael, again, the only woman in the Bible to ever said be said to have loved someone, Michael loved David. But there was also some dark things. Saul was jealous of David. And he made some secret attempts at removing David David from his presence. Now we continue to see how Saul's anger rises in 1 Samuel 19, hear the word of God. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning, stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Saul at Ramah, or Samuel, rather, at Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. And then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they're at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? That's for the reading of God's holy word. May he bless that word to us now. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, We face a unique challenge as congregation or as church community in this particular moment of history within Western civilization. We're in the midst of a culture that's decaying, that is dying before our eyes, and uh, the death rattle of our society is causing us concern, fear, uncertainty. We don't know... Where are countries headed? We don't know what the future will hold for us, but we have a sense that it's not going to be particularly good for Christians and for the church. And how do we then, as congregation, how do we then, as Christians, how do we relate to such a culture? How do we interact with, how do we live within a society that is becoming not just post-Christian, but anti-Christian, In his book, Center Church, Tim Keller suggests that there have historically been four ways, four or five ways, in which the church has sought to relate to the culture around them. He describes them, he offers their strengths and weaknesses. For what it's worth, they are transformationist, that is, Christians pursuing their vocations from a Christian worldview, trying to bring light into the darkness of this world, uh, there is relevance, that means essentially adopting the good things of the culture but adding Christian things to it. There is countercultural. you might think monasteries, you might think the Benedict Option by Rod Dreher. And then there are two kingdoms, which means to interact with the world under the rubric of natural law. You go out into the world and you deal with it in one way, you go to the church and you deal with it another way. Now which is the right one? Which of these historical positions in the church of Jesus Christ is the one that we should adopt now that would be best for our relationship with the culture today? That's a challenging question. That's a big question. That's a question that cannot be answered in the few moments that we have together this morning. But it illustrates that the church has long struggled with, has long wrestled with the question of how to relate to a culture that is contrary to, that is, against the gospel, against the church of, Je- of Jesus Christ. We'll not be able to answer exactly how we're going to uh, fulfill the calling of God to us in order to witness to our culture, but we can, at least, in the time that we have this morning, think about some basic principles uh, in, that we can adopt, that we can use as Christians as we go out in this coming week and in this coming year, to witness to our world. Our text helps us do just that. Our text that begins uh, with the story of Jonathan helping to save David after his father says to him and to all of his men, I want you to kill David. And and in that command of the king to his people, Saul's enmity, Saul's anger, at who David is, that righteous son of Jesse, that defender of the faith, that anointed of God, Saul's enmity towards David now becomes public. It had been private. It was quiet. He was subtle, and now he is public. He says, I am against this Messiah. In the same way that our culture publicly ridicules, publicly acknowledges that it is against the faith. But now Jonathan intervenes. Jonathan comes to his father and he goes out into the field and he has a word with his daddy. He says, wait a second, what's going on? Dad, why, why do you want to kill David? Think of what he's done. Think of the victory he's given. Think of how he's blessed you. And of course Saul then acknowledges these things and commits to not killing him and then of course quickly goes to try and kill him again. But in his intervention on behalf of his friend david jonathan does something interesting in in his speaking to saul he he speaks to saul in a way that 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 frames the issue uh, very carefully It, it would not be surprising that saul in his dealings with david personalized his issue with this son of jesse That is, Saul may not have said, I'm against God and against his word and will. I'm against God's kingdom and his redeeming power. That may not have been what Saul said. It may not have been what Saul thought. Saul may well have said to himself, this is just an upstart. This is a threat to the kingdom of God. This is a man who's undermining the authority of the government. This is someone who brings oppression, not blessing, who brings trouble, not grace. You can imagine that Saul would personalize this issue. But Jonathan says, Oh, no, oh, no, King Saul, no, Father. The, the issue here is far more redemptive, far more spiritual. Jonathan reminds Saul that he must include the King of Kings in his reflections on this situation. And he does that by repeatedly referring to sin. In his speech with his father, he says, let not the king sin against his servant David because he has not sinned against you. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Jonathan says to his father, you think your issues with David, your issues not with David, your issues with the Lord, he has your claim, he has your call, he has commanded you to live in obedience to him. You have to answer to God. What you are thinking of doing to David is a violation of the Lord's will and it will bring you into judgment with God. Do not war against the Lord. Do not war against the king. And here's a reminder already in this text on how we as God's people in this culture and context with these leaders and politicians, with our professors at university, with our culture all around us, here is a reminder of how we can witness to the world. We do tend, unfortunately, like Saul, to make matters too often about us. And we want to, like so many within our world, rise up with such power that those in positions of authority must deal with us. Do what we say or else. But we do better to follow Jonathan's lead and point our leaders to their God. For he is the one that they will one day stand before this is, he is the one whom they will one day have to give an answer to for all of their rebellion against him. We ought to tremble at the thought of what will happen to Justin Trudeau if he should be called home today to stand before God. Can you imagine the wrath and the rage of God's righteous anger that will consume that man? And does that not give us pause and concern To be sure, that means that we'll have to surrender our own desires and demands for this nation, for its culture, for its leadership. We will have to say, the Lord's will be done. We will have to surrender what we think is right and good and true. But we live in God's world. We live in God's creation, and he is sovereign over all. We, as the church, know this most keenly and rejoice in this most powerfully because we know Jesus Christ, the great King of kings. We know the mercy of God. We know the love of God. We know that the way to blessedness is in the way of God. And so we ought to invite all men to join with us. War not against the King of kings, for he will destroy you. Join with us in praising him, for he is a great God. And there is an encouragement also in that and in Jonathan's words to his father. For not only is Jonathan right to say to Saul, listen, Saul, your problem's with God, not with David. But there's also an encouragement for David there and for Jonathan and all who are righteous. For Saul's enmity is irrational. It's illogical. It makes no sense. Every time David does something good for Saul, Saul gets even angrier. Think of how irrational that is. Think of how foolish that is. Every time David blesses Saul, Saul wishes to eliminate him. It's not unlike our culture and society. The salt and the light of our society, the place of blessing, of community, of fellowship, of tolerance, of encouragement, is the church. Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Here there is unity. Here there is encouragement. Here there is responsibility. Here there is blessing. The church remains as an institution, one of the great blessings of Western civilization. There is endless data to demonstrate that. To demonstrate that economically, churches increase the economic blessing of their community by significant amounts. That they provide blessings through ministries in medical, in long-term care, in social programs. That it is indeed the Christian community that provides the most blessing to Canadian culture is demonstrable statistically. So why does our prime minister and why do our premiers hate the church? It makes no sense. But it's not about the church, is it? It's not about us. Their enmity is not towards those who do good. Their enmity is against the one who has moved them to do good. Indeed, it is a reminder that the darkness of sin hates the brightness of light, for it condemns the sin that these leaders desire. And we must never, of course, be obnoxious in ourselves, to be sure. We must also be gracious and kind to those around us and realize that there is a way for us to be a blessing, a winsome winner of souls within our culture. But we must also understand that as church, there is an opposition to the gospel that exists to the King of kings and Lord of lords, that no matter how nice we are, we can ever overcome. So that it's not about the church winning popularity. Indeed, it is not our responsibility to win at all, but only to witness. To witness to the God who is sovereign and who blesses those who trust in him. We are, you see, engaged in a spiritual battle as church. And in that battle, the hatred of those who reject the gospel burns hot. And our responsibility as church is to say, it's not with us you have an issue, but with God. A God who is sovereign in all that he does. The story of David's interactions with Saul continues. It repeats itself at verse 8. There's war again. David goes out again, fights and again delivers a great blow against the Philistines. And then we're told this harmful spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul as he sits in his house with his spear in his hand. Just by way of note for future reference, why is the king in his house when there's war going on? But we'll carry on. We'll keep that in mind for a future reference. He's got his spear in his hand. There's a bit of a play on words here. Saul sits in his house with his spear in his hand with a weapon of death. David is playing the liar. It's literally David has the liar in his hand. Saul has a spear. David has a liar. David is blessing. David is winning Saul, calming Saul's spirit. Saul's ready to kill David. Indeed, he throws again that spear as he had before, seeking to pin him into the wall, but David escapes into the night. Saul's commitment to being gracious and kind to David is short-lived. Very quickly, he wants to kill David again. And that then involves conscripting his daughter into this event as well. Saul's rage expands now beyond just his army. He had said to his army, kill David. And then he had tried to kill him himself. And now he's going to ask his daughter his own house. He's reaching into David's family to twist against David, even those that love him. A violation here of everything good and right. A reminder of how far sin rejects even the most ordinary good. Within the culture of Saul's day, within the culture even of the world in Saul's day, being hospitable, being good to someone in their home, was of greatest importance to then cause someone to die, to kill your own son-in-law, to use your daughter to kill your son-in-law was such a violation. Even the world would say this is terrible. But so into sin is Saul, so deep into the darkness of sin, that he'll do anything to kill this enemy of his. Now Michael, of course, finds out and she devises a ruse to protect her husband, and she does a good job of it. Eventually David's able to escape and that bed that they're supposed to bring to Saul so that Saul can kill David even in his own throne room turns out to contain well something that is meant to look like David but isn't David. So that even the members of Saul's own house are thwarted, are thwarting rather his plan to have the threat against God's anointed uh, defeated. Now what does all of this mean? It's actually a very challenging portion of God's Word to interpret because there is obviously deliverance here. There is God's deliverance, which is lovely and great. There is this encouraging revelation again of how God is protecting David, though he has enemies on all sides. David will speak of this in the Psalms and he will repeatedly discuss how the Lord is able to deliver. Psalm 34, our family visiting theme, deals with this very thing. And David's able from very personal experience to stand in awe of just how great God's protection of him is. But on the other hand, there are some odd things that go along here. I mean, that evil spirit, that harmful spirit from the Lord is what motivated Saul to try to kill David. And even with respect to his own daughter, there's some uneasy elements to that story. I mean, it's on the one hand a great story, another one in the long line of stories in the Bible of women delivering men. That is a profound theme through all of Scripture, not surprising as we've just celebrated Christmas. It is through a woman, not through a man, that deliverance comes. This is a gospel moment as Michael protects her husband. But she does it with an idol. That image that was in our text, if you read the footnote, it said household God. It is actually a word for a God that is only found one other time in the book of Genesis with Rachel and you remember Jacob and how his father-in-law Laban came, you stole my gods. And then Jacob says, oh no, I haven't stolen anything. And you remember where those gods were found. Same word, same reference to this, which increases a bit of uncertainty. What is Michael doing with these household gods? Why does she still have them in the house? And And then when she's confronted by her father, why did you do this? She doesn't say, He's the anointed of God because what you're doing is wicked because this is unrighteous. She says, well, he threatened to kill me if I wouldn't, which is a lie. Why would she lie? It doesn't end well for Michael, by the way, the only woman to ever be said to have loved her husband. In the end, like her father, and in many ways she's like her father in in this event, dishonest, deceitful. Like her father, she can't establish her house. Michael will die childless, 2 Samuel 6, verse 23. So she's not blessed by the Lord. So there's all this, there's this wonderful deliverance, but this weird sort of evil spirit from the Lord, Michael's idolatry and dishonesty. What do we do with this part of the story? Well, we should at least note that the Lord can work deliverance no matter what. He can use the strangest, the most crooked sticks, the most twisted and gnarly branches that have fallen from the tree. He can take that stick and draw a straight line with it. Indeed, here is a great contrast, isn't it, between our God and that image that lay in the bed pretending to be David. Michael had to carry the image there and had to put the hair on it and because that image is dead, that image is lifeless. The gods of the nations need to be carried, need to be, they need to be uh, shown to be alive, but they are only active insofar as their adherents give them life. But the living God, ah, oh, the living God, he can bend anyone to his will. All must serve his plan and purpose even if they refuse to acknowledge him. It's not only those who willingly obey God that are used by him to advance his cause and his kingdom. I mean, just think of Christmas. Just think of the story of Jesus. Think of Caesar Augustus, unwittingly used by God. Think of Pilate, think of Herod, think of Judas. How wicked is Judas used by God? all warring with the Lord, all rejecting his claim upon them, all used to bring about the redemption of the king. Indeed, the cross and the empty tomb testify to us to this very day with all the evidence we need to know that God will forever be victorious no matter how deceptive, no matter how powerful, no matter how wicked the enemy is, even their rage is used by the God of heaven and earth to advance his plan of redemption. David ends up exactly where God wants him to be so that the plan of redemption might advance. Now that means that David has to surrender his life. David has to go where the Lord wants him to be, which may not be where the Lord where David wants to be. David wants to be safe and secure in his own bed, lying beside his wife, and he has to flee to Naoth at Ramah. He has to suffer. He has to struggle. He has to enter into the schoolhouse of pain in order that he might learn dependence upon the Lord. We're going to see that repeatedly in the next few chapters. David is going to have to learn what God has for him but he's exactly where God wants him to be and God gets him there by using enemies who reject him but who must serve his purpose now what a comfort is that for the church of Jesus Christ in the culture and the context in which we live right now even as we rage even as we in our own righteousness wonder what the lord's doing why would you allow these leaders of our nations of western civilization not just canada all over western why would you allow these people to be in positions of power you think of the middle east you think of the persecuted church you think of china why lord why we sit rather comfortably to be honest compared to some of our brothers and sisters in the faith who might well say lord why why and the answer we might give is exactly out of this passage, we just wait, wait and see, wait and see what the Lord's doing. because He's using these enemies of His. They're, they're seeking to overthrow His chains, but God in heaven laughs and says, "But my anointed I have established on my holy hill. In the battle of righteousness, the Lord protects and preserves." even when his enemy fights dishonestly and unjustly, and the Lord is not thwarted by the cruelty of his enemy, he does exactly what he plans and purposes. He accomplishes his work of redemption for his people. We are not losing this battle. We are not losing this culture. We are not losing this country. Because our God is God. And he can even use Justin Trudeau to advance his purposes in our spiritual struggle, be comforted to know that our God is sovereign even in the mess. The call that we face as a result of this is just to remain faithful. It's messy. Oh yes, it's messy. David climbs out of a window. David has to run fleeing from his father-in-law. It's ugly. It's painful. It's in the moment difficult to understand. But as the mess swirls around David, better to be David, standing with the Lord in service to him than be Michael, who buckles under the pressure, than to be Saul, who hates David. Better to be with the Lord in suffering than without the Lord in the palace. And that comes to most clear expression in the end of this chapter at verse 18 and following. David fled and escaped, we're told, and he goes to Samuel at Ramah. And he tells Samuel everything that's happened. And then Saul finds out. The one who anointed David, the one who was called by God to prepare the way for the king, the one who grieved over the rebellion of Saul, the one who knows this full story, he's the one to whom David flees. David goes to the word of God. He goes to the prophet of the Lord. Help me understand, Samuel. Help me understand what's going on. Saul also goes to Samuel in the end. He first sends some troops, but he keeps finding out that those troops can't make it. They, They never make it all the way to Samuel. So Saul says, well, I'll go myself. And while his emissaries, as they came close to where Samuel was, they were slain in the Spirit. They were overcome by the Holy Spirit's presence and power and they prophesied, preventing them from fulfilling their work of death. Saul also is captured by that same Spirit, but now not just as he comes. This is one of the Ironies of the text, one of the humorous elements of the text. His, his servants, when they get there, they get slain in the spirit. Saul gets slain before he gets there. He walks up to Naoth, prophesying of the Lord, and lies there naked, stripped of all his symbols of kingship, exposed as just a mere man, under the dominion of the living God. Indeed, in that moment, we have a picture of the poverty and the weakness of all who seek to do war with the Lord and with his anointed. God in heaven laughs and mocks and exposes to shame. God wins. Now, there is, of course, an important contrast here. On the one hand, David fled but Saul marched. David suffered and suffered unjustly and Saul despite his injustice and cruelty sits still enthroned and in power. We might want to say God why why not just kill Saul? Why not just end this? If you have the power to slay him in the spirit, then stop his heart from beating. Let's be done with all of this and let David lead the people. Yet, of course, there is another aspect to this story that is worth noting, a promise of powerful victory. David is repeatedly preserved in this story, not for his own sake, but for the sake of his office, being the chosen of the Lord, the king of kings, the Messiah, God's plan of redemption, has so surrounded David that even his enemies cannot penetrate the Lord's defenses. David will be king. But first, he had to suffer. There is in this A very familiar pattern. Though the victory of Christ is sure, though when he was born in the manger, the day of his ascending into heaven and sitting at the Father's right hand was guaranteed. Yet before he could get there he had to go to the very lowest of the low. He had to suffer just like the church has to suffer. We walk in the footsteps of our Savior. We follow the path that He trod. And this is true not only as a congregation, this is true as a church throughout the world, this is true even personally. The Christian life, people of God, is not a glorious ascent to greatness. It is a daily Death, dying to the old self, bringing to life the new, a conscious, continual commitment. Too often we coast through the Christian life expecting that everything will work out and struggling when it doesn't. Lord, why must I suffer? Lord, why must I struggle? Why must my situation be so hard? Because we've forgotten. We've forgotten. We've forgotten. That as God's people, as Christians who walk in the way, we are the ones who follow Christ's footsteps into death that we might enter into life. Being a Christian is a daily commitment, an activity, a choice. It is our persistent pursuit of our King but we make that pursuit in this confidence, the victory is sure. We are pursuing not victory by our might. Oh no, the victory is secured. We're seeking to be faithful. We're seeking to walk in the way of our Lord. We're seeking to glorify our God. We're seeking to honor Him. That's it. That's the entire Christian calling. Also in a dying culture, The enemy has been thwarted. The victory is secure. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But we need to depend upon this Lord. We need to walk in faith with this Lord. We need to serve this Lord. And that that requires some sacrifice. That requires some surrender. That requires suffering. We may not like it but it leads to the most glorious green pastures of all. And this is the way forward for the church then in a dying culture, in a dying society. Declaring the priority of God to any and all. Experiencing his deliverance in marvelous ways. Being utterly confident in the Lord's care. That's what we come to celebrate next Sunday in the Lord's Supper. We get to be reminded in the midst of our spiritual battle in which we falter and fail, in which we do not succeed as we are, in which we struggle and sorrow, we get to come for a moment and rest. Put down our weapons, put down our armor, sit in the robes of righteousness provided us by Christ and at his table be nourished, be equipped, be strengthened, We gain more in that table than all the political parties gain through their fundraising, through their schemes and through their plans and purposes. We feast. We grow. We strengthen for the fight. And then we go forth into this world faithful, testifying that this is our God, the God who is sovereign, the God who is glorious, and the God who has loved us with a perfect love in Jesus Christ. There are many ways in which we can talk about, think about, interact with our culture and our world. But let this be at the heart of all of them, that our God reigns. Let's thank him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you in the midst of a dying culture that we who live a dying life do so unto life. That we put to death the old nature and bring to life the new. That we walk in the footsteps of the one who's gone before us, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And that we have a word and a witness to bring to this world. Let them rage, let them cast off as they seek to the chains of your word and will. We know that you have established your son on Zion's holy hill. And So help us not to be distracted, help us not to become despairing, help us not to become overly discouraged. Help us, O heavenly God and Father, to be reminded that as we fight, we fight on the side of victors. And as we suffer, we suffer in service to life itself. And so keep us in your care, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.